Well, and as you take your seats, also please do take your Bibles together with me and open in them to John chapter 16. I too want to add my voice to Pastor Jeremiah in welcoming you here this morning for our Christmas services. And for those of you who perhaps are family and or friends of uh, folks that come to this church, we're, we're glad to have you. Uh, our practice here is to simply open the Word of God and to go through it week by week, and that's really what we've been doing through the text of John's Gospel in the New Testament here over the past couple of years. And this morning, we find ourselves opening to the text of John 16 because that's the next text in our sequential study, and I know some of you are sitting here thinking, I never knew that John 16 was a Christmas text, and believe it or not, it is, because what we're being encouraged to here in John 16 is to truly know the joy that comes from having a relationship with Jesus. And I cannot imagine a more appropriate message for a Christmas Eve Sunday morning. Is that what we're calling this? Christmas Eve Sunday morning than a message that encourages us to have joy to this world. Our Lord has indeed come. Because that's exactly the command that Jesus is going to give to us here in John 16. You know, we began our worship this morning appropriately by singing the classic Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, which ever since it was first written in 1719 by one Isaac Watts, it has been admonishing and encouraging Christians to embrace the joy of Jesus. And as I've said, I'm so glad that we began our time this morning by, by singing that strong admonition to rejoice in who our Savior is, because the text that's in front of us here today is a text that, that really encourages us to, to have that joy of Christ. But it's a joy that, that ought to be ours beyond just a single day in the year, like Christmas Day. It's a text that admonishes us to have joy that extends beyond just a simple day of the week, like Sunday. No, friend, for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, the joy that comes from knowing Him is a joy that should reside within us, burn brightly and reach deeply and be ever-present every single day of our lives. And this text, John 16, is going to not only encourage us towards that end, it's also going to instruct us how to find that kind of joy. Because that joy, it is to be the very fabric of our lives regardless of what is going on around us. So yes, according to John 16, joy to the world is a very fitting question for us to take up and consider here together on this Christmas Sunday. But when we talk about joy as Christians, or we talk about Christian joy, it's probably important for us to go ahead and define our terms, is it not? When we say joy to the world, what do we mean by that kind of joy? I fear sometimes people have a tendency to mistake happiness for joy as though joy were a fleeting moment of satisfaction that comes when you open that present that you've been wanting and asking for for months. 
you know, a child opens a Christmas gift, for instance, and you see something that, that resembles joy carved onto their face. But then you parents know how it goes. 24 hours go by, and the object that brought such deep satisfaction to them ends up relegated to the bin. Clearly, joy and happiness are not the same thing. That's not the appropriate definition of joy. I fear that sometimes people confuse a state of fulfillment with joy, a mood with having joy. You know, perhaps you, like me, have had a chance this week to sit next to a quiet fire or to bake cookies. I actually didn't do that, and thank goodness for that. Or maybe you, you sat next to, to a Christmas candle with, with a good book. And there was in that moment a, a flood of warmth and emotion that washed over you. A, a tingling in your toes and a, and a light-hearted cheerfulness deep within you. But then, out of nowhere, real life hits. Perhaps it was a baby who was crying, or a bill that came due, or a a spouse that spoke impatiently in the moment, and the spell of that moment is now broken, and you find yourself trying to figure out how to manipulate your circumstances and environment to reproduce that fleeting experience so that you can have joy once more. Clearly, an emotional mood isn't the appropriate biblical definition of joy either. So... What did the angels mean when they shouted, joy to the world? And what does Jesus mean here in John chapter 16, verse 24, when he says that it's his intention that our joy would now be made full? Really good question. And that's the question that we're going to take up and consider here this morning. I think it's so important for us to have this clearly in our minds, especially at Christmas time. When we run around and tell people, joy to the world, what do we mean by that? And how do we get it? Well, let me give you the answer right up front. And you may want to write this definition down so you can think it over in your mind later on. True joy is hope applied to today. True joy is hope applied to today. See, joy is a settled confidence, comfort, clarity that accompanies you when you know Jesus Christ and you can see what he's actively doing in you. See, if if hope is me looking forward to what is mine in eternity, then joy is me embracing what is mine right now. The work that Jesus is doing in me here today ought to produce within me joy. And as I embrace what he is doing and all the great promises and blessings of my life in him, that is the biblical definition of what constitutes true, genuine, real Christian joy. It's hope applied to today. And look. If you're going to know that kind of joy today and tomorrow and every other day of your life, then you first have got to understand what Jesus came to do and how that impacts your life specifically. So this morning, we're going to see three things that Jesus came to do. And we're also going to see the joy that comes from those things being accomplished in our lives right now. 
we're going to embrace as our own those things that he came to do. And in the process, my hope and prayer is that the word of God and the truth of Jesus would generate deep, profound, abiding, burning joy within your soul for this holiday and for every other day. So let's begin. What's the first thing that Jesus came to do? Well, we can find that being demonstrated to us right off the bat here in verse 19. See, he came to care for you. Now, as we get going here, I realize that some of my more astute theological students here in the room might be objecting. I thought that Jesus came to glorify the Father. And he certainly did. John 17, 4, for instance, said, I, Christ, glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't any intention on the part of Christ towards us. For instance, as Luke 19:10 says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. See, the one purpose doesn't cancel out the other. And so it is an accurate statement to say that Jesus did come to care for us. And that really is the primary means by which he brings glory to the Father. But it's that secondary purpose of his care for you, his care for me, for mankind, that we are talking about here in this text. You know, and as we've gone through the Gospel of John, haven't we seen the caring heart of Christ on display over and over and over again. I mean, if you've been here with us over the course of these last 16 chapters, you, like me, have probably lost count of the number of times that we have seen cocky knuckleheadedness out of these disciples. So many face-palming, cringe-inducing, catch-your-breath sort of moments. But in every single one of those instances, as we've come up against the, the raw humanity of these disciples, what have we seen simultaneously out of the beautiful person of Jesus Christ? We have seen love. We have seen patience. We have seen kindness and tenderness. We've seen a caring kind of Christ. And that right there is exactly what we find happening again here in verse 19. Jesus, if you'll remember in the context, has been teaching these men now for three straight chapters, giving them some of the most profound kind of truth, truth that's taken us three or four months to truly really begin to unravel. And yet the response of these disciples is to say, what in the world is he talking about? We don't get it. And Jesus, instead of responding to their confusion here in verse 19 with frustration, responds with the tenderest kind of care that you can imagine. Jesus, look there, knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? The word is to deliberate. Is this what you are concerned by amongst yourselves? Do you see the way that it's as though he figuratively puts his arm around their heart and just draws these men back into himself. Do you see the tender mercy there in the tone of his voice for these men? See, his response to their confusion isn't anger, frustration, impatience. It's tenderness. And that's consistent with him. 
because after all, he did come to care for us. And while he was here on this earth from birth all the way through to death, he did just that. And verse 19 is another illustration of it, but it's only an illustration. It isn't the completion. See, the culmination of Jesus' care for you shouldn't be measured here simply by the tone of his voice, although it can be seen there. No, the, care, the measure of his care for you is really measured by what he makes possible in you. See, his care for you is manifested by the way that he now makes it possible for us to know him. And that's the substance of his statement here in the back half of the verse. Are you asking yourselves what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? You see, folks, it's our ability now to see and to know Jesus that is the true culmination and fulfillment of the way by which he has permanently and perpetually cared for you specifically. And that's the reason why we should rejoice. So let's dig into that truth here for just a couple of moments together. And it's, it's very interesting now. I want you to look carefully at what he says. Because in the original language, Jesus uses two very different words to talk about how the disciples would be able to see him. In the first part of his statement, he says, A little while and you will not see me. And it's a word that means to behold something with one's own physical eyes. He's saying, you won't be able to lay eyes on me. But then he goes on and he uses a different word. But again, a little while and you will see me. And that word, therefore, see, is an entirely different word. It's a word that means to stand as a witness to something. It's a word that means to have a relational knowledge of someone. It's a word that speaks of an experiential kind of vision. Let me illustrate the difference in those two words for you this way. I see with my own eyes all of you that are gathered here and present in this room this morning. And boy, do you look fine. It's a sea of red and green. Everybody ready for their family photo at the booth out back. I can see you. I can perceive the physical reality of you. But as your pastor, when I look out at all of you, I see and I know that in many cases there are deep and profound hurts, griefs, pain, and struggle at this season in particular. And you say to yourself, I hear everybody wishing each other a very Merry Christmas, but it sure doesn't feel like a very Merry Christmas to me. And in some instances, I know the reality of that in your life, and I'm sure there's much more to it than, than I even can know. And I would just simply say to you, if, if you are here this morning and that is your sentiment, this is not a very merry Christmas. My encouragement is that you would lean into the glorious reality that it was for the solving of a sin-cursed world that Jesus Christ came to begin with. And that right there, that is something worth celebrating. He came to sort out the reality that sin has now cursed this world and he came to, to offer us himself and a relationship with him as an eternal blessing. 
And so that, that right there, despite what's going on around you, gives you reason to celebrate, despite the difficulty and the lack of joy that you might feel in your present circumstances. There is joy that is available to you after all. That's a sidebar for those of you, a pastoral moment for those of you in the room who may be feeling that way. But let's get back to my point. See, simply seeing you as present in the room, seeing your person, that's a very different kind of vision than me being able to relationally see and know you, along with all your needs here this morning. Do you get the difference? That's the difference here in this text. Though the disciples would not be able to see him in the room anymore, they would now be able to intimately know him forever in their hearts. The way by which Jesus would permanently care for these men, and the way, by the way, by which Jesus permanently cares for you, is the way by which he plants his spirit deeply within you so that you now, with eyes to see, can always know him. And that's the impact of what he means when he says, again, when the Spirit comes, a little while, and you will see me with an experiential, comprehensive, witnessing kind of knowledge. There will be a relationship between us. And that is the main point here. When we say that Jesus came to care for us and our needs, this is the need that we all had that we would gain and pick up an ongoing internal relationship of vibrancy with Christ. That's what he came to accomplish. And so when we say that Jesus came to care for us, this kind of knowledge of him is exactly what we're talking about. And friend, this morning, grasping the availability of that kind of relationship to Jesus, that's where we must begin if we are to have true joy on a Christmas morning. Because as Jesus has been saying here through John 13, 14, 15, 16, He didn't leave us now as orphans. He's not here one moment and gone the next as though he's saying, good luck, disciples, here on the earth. Hope to see you in heaven someday. No. He and his Father, through their Spirit, now have made their very dwelling place within us. And the results of that for you are profound. And it's the reason why joy can be available to you today. You know, there are so many texts that I could direct your attention to about how the Spirit of God brings joy to the life of the Christian. But let me satisfy you this morning with just a, a few. You can write these references down and go back and look at them for your own encouragement later on. John chapter 14, verse 16, you'll remember where Jesus said there, I, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. There is an eternal blessing, friendship, relationship that has now been offered to us, a helper who is with us forever. Romans 8.26 tells us the impact of that truth. The Spirit, He helps us in all of our weaknesses. And boy, howdy, do we sure have weaknesses. 
but there is the Spirit of God dwelling within us if we've come to Christ, helping us with those weaknesses so that we might see Christ, know Christ, and be more like Him. The result of that is explained to us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, where now, because of that work within you as the Spirit of God helps you with those weaknesses, now, now you can cast all of your cares on Him, knowing that He cares for you. And that comes with a profound reality for us this morning. And, and here's a verse for those of you who are struggling this Christmas. Psalm 34, 18, because of the Spirit of God within us, the Lord, He is near to the brokenhearted and He saves the ones who have been crushed in spirit. Do you see the comprehensive care that the Spirit of God present within you offers to bring to you? And so, though we may not see Him with our eyes, we sure can see Him in our souls. And that is just as Jesus promised here it would be. In a little while, you will see me. And so, that's the reason why we as Christians now can say, Praise Jesus and joy to the world, I can know God. See, it's as we grasp the ongoing care of a gracious, tender, merciful Savior for our souls that the flickering wick of our joy can truly begin to burn. And that's what Jesus goes on to explain here next in the text. He didn't just come to care for us. He also came so that we might know the fullness of joy. You know, you've heard of a public service announcement. Let me go ahead and give you a parental service announcement here this morning. Before tomorrow morning rolls around, parents, it's probably a good idea to go ahead and calibrate everybody's expectations, right? We, we give our gifts thinking, this thing is going to bring happiness to my loved one's face. And for, for the most fleeting of moments, it does. But as the Christmases roll by and my kids and I all get a little older, do you know what I'm noticing? That if joy is tied to a thing, it will not, it cannot last because fulfillment gives way to familiarity and soon the item that once brought such pleasure is now on a shelf or worse yet, lurking underfoot like a landmine. And as I was cleaning up some toys this week, my first question was, why am I doing this and not my kids? But my second realization was this. I am literally putting the joy of Christmas past into a bucket right now. This is not the way that it should be. You see, the truth of this text teaches us that true joy, it doesn't come from anything around us. It can only come from Him who is now in us. And if you try to swap out stuff that was most likely made in China as a replacement for true joy that is only made in heaven, then any fleeting feelings you have are going to fade fast because apart from Christ, there is and can be no lasting joy. And that is the truth of what Jesus explains to us here in verses 20 through 22. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will leap and lament, but the world, it's going to rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What's he saying there? He's saying that the world is going to have its moment of rejoicing they're going to have the briefest moment where they think they've gotten what they want as they put Christ to death. 
They reject him because they love their darkness. And so for the disciples, that moment is a moment of terrible pain, weeping and lamenting. But for the world, it's a moment of greatest joy, temporarily. See, while the disciples mourn, the world is going to do a little dance, knowing that they have gotten their heart's greatest desire. But then that moment of fleeting happiness in their hearts, it is going to fade and go away, and they will go back to being their same old miserable selves that they were before. That's what Jesus is saying there. But you, disciples, you're going to get something different. You're going to see your sorrow converted into joy. And skip down to the end of verse 22. And when that happens, nobody is going to take your joy away from you. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, how do we go from being a part of the world with a temporary joy to being a follower of Jesus Christ who has a joy that nobody can take away from us? Well, Jesus gives the roadmap in between verses 20 and 22. It's found there in the second half of 20 down through 21. See, Jesus did not come to produce a situation where the world has joy and his followers have sorrow, not hardly. See, the temporary joy of the world, it can't hold a candle to the power of true joy that comes through Jesus Christ because that was the point of his whole life, birth, death and resurrection, that through the sequence of events whereby God became man and dwelt amongst us, we might now know the fullness of joyous life with God forever. That's the pathway, and it's what Jesus points us to understand here. And he uses a little parable that he bakes in to help us understand that reality. Let me explain the parable, and then we'll apply it here for ourselves. See, he illustrates the power of this transformation from sorrow to joy by talking about the phenomenon that is known as human birth. You can see it right there in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Friends, that is so very true. You know, the birth of a child, it ranks amongst the most profound of human experiences, and I suspect that's why Jesus uses the image here. And as I learned with our first child, they don't call it labor for nothing. And as a man, I frankly found the whole process just absolutely terrifying. I'm very certain that the, the term delivery has more to do with the mother than it has to do with the child. And I know all of you women here in the room are thinking this morning, buddy, you don't know the first thing about it. But as soon as that child is delivered into the world, somehow you go from thinking, we are never doing this again, to the sun of bright and brilliant love burning away the memory of all of that sorrow, pain, and agony. That's the illustration here that Jesus gives us. What does that mean? Well, I am very confident that Mary, Jesus' mother, did not find the birth of Jesus an enjoyable experience. You know, in all of our little nativity scenes, we see everybody bowing down and giving gifts and angels singing. 
But the reality of that first Christmas was a dirty and difficult affair. A stable, a birth in a stable, a newborn in a manger, all the filth and fury of animals being all around. But as, as soon as that was over, joy replaced the pain. The joy of that moment erased the sorrow of what it took to get there. And Jesus' point here is very clear. Just as there was pain for his mother at his arrival, just as there is pain for any mother at any arrival of a baby, so too would there be pain for his disciples at his departure. But the pain of birth gave way to the joy of life. And so too would the pain of his death give way to the birth of new life, of spiritual life. And that is the point that Jesus is talking about here. Would there be pain in the production of this new life? Yes, just like there was at the production of physical life. But would eternal joy be purchased through that pain? Also, yes. See, from beginning to end, birth to death, joy was the intended product of his life. Because now there is redemption available between you and God. And so that's what Jesus points their attention to here in verse 22. He says, so now that you are going to see me go, you will have sorrow, but here's what will bring you joy. I am going to see you again. And then your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What is it? that brings about this condition of inalterable joy that Jesus is talking about. Well, let's zero in there on that phrase where he says, I will see you again. That's what makes all the difference in the transformation from their sorrow at his death to their rejoicing in the newness of life. It is the fact that now Jesus is going to see them again. And the very careful and astute listener or reader will notice that Jesus has done something very interesting here. Because throughout chapters 13 and 14 and 15, Jesus has been talking about the way that his departure will enable the coming of the Spirit so that now we will be able to see him. But now he reverses it and says, and I am also going to see you. What is that, friend? It's a two-way street. It's a vibrant, meaningful relationship whereby you are now able to see and know and love God, and He now demonstrates His own love back towards you. There's relationship there, and that relationship now becomes the foundation of a joy that no one can take from you. This is what He came to make possible. This morning, I want you to see what that relationship produces, a joy that no one can take from you. And that is the force of the statement that Jesus makes here. Truly, truly, I say to you, because of this relationship where you see me and I see you, no one will be able to touch your joy. And this, this is what Jesus came to bring and now it can be yours. The whole point of his life, beginning to end, was so that you could have the joy 
of knowing Jesus. And if you would but place your faith in his work, then your sorrow can be turned into rejoicing. As his spirit now takes up residency within you, making vibrant relationship to him now possible. See, the apostle Peter explained for us very clearly in 1 Peter 1 verse 8 what that relationship now is like for those of us who have never laid physical eyes on Jesus. Peter says there in 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen him, that describes us, yet you love him. And why is that? Well, though you do not see him now, Peter says, you believe in him. And the result of that belief is that now through his spirit within you, you are able to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled up to overflowing with glory. And so if you are sitting here today and your joy is of the fleeting kind, it's found in stuff or in people or in kids or in work or in toys, you need to know the true and abiding, lasting, untouchable joy that comes from knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. You need relationship to God. And the only way that that is possible as if, is as you come to Christ, be, believe in His work on your behalf, receive the gift of His Spirit who brings life to you. That is the source of true joy. And it's what Jesus came to provide. See, if you would believe, that's where the journey of joy begins. But it's not where the journey ends. Because see, from there on out, as a saved, indwelt follower of Jesus Christ, you're going now to have power for living that you never even knew existed. And this, now, this is where our joy goes from being like the flickering flame on the top of a candle to being a roaring furnace deeply within us. Because now his life in us is going to produce a, a burning, ongoing joy because you and I in him, now we've got the power to truly live. Look at what Jesus says now in these final two verses. Look, he came to empower us. That's the third thing that he came to accomplish. Verses 23 to 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. I'll explain that in a moment. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. But ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. Isn't that what we're all after? To have the fullness of joy that belongs to us in Christ? So, if we've come to him and believed, how do we get that kind of joy? What do these verses even mean? Well, on the first reading of them, these verses might sound like the ultimate Christmas verses. Ask whatever you want, and God will give it to you. Is this a guarantee that God is going to give us whatever we want, as though he were some kind of wonderful Christmas genie? Simply name it and claim it. Not hardly. See, these verses are not a promise to give you everything that you want, 
but they are a promise to give you everything that you need in Christ to have a vibrant relationship with God. That's what these verses mean. Here's what you need most. You need to be one with Christ and look like Him. You need Him to take up His residency within you. You need a meaningful, active relationship to Him because, I'll say it very clearly, He is enough. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here in verse 23 when He says, In that day, when the Spirit comes and you're indwelt by My presence, you will not ask anything of Me. Why does He say that? Because you've already got everything you need to have with Him inside of you. That's why He says that. There would be nothing else that these men or we could ever need beyond what He has already furnished us inside of us. See, with Jesus living inside of us, that's what He means when He says in that day, that's the day He's been talking about for three chapters. Now, when that day comes... How could any of us need anything beyond what we've already got dwelling within us? See, if you have come to Him and received His Spirit as your helper, there is nothing that you need but don't already have. No, instead, from now on, all of their requests would be able to truly be made in the name of Jesus. Now, a very brief word of explanation now, because some of you understand what that means, because you've been here for the last three chapters, and some of you don't, or maybe you've forgotten. But a, a brief word of explanation, what does that mean? Now, we've covered this several times already in the Upper Room Discourse, because this is now the third time that Jesus has made this promise in as many chapters. And as we explained in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, now again in John chapter 16, this does not mean that we just simply tack Jesus' name on to the end of all of our prayers as though that were some magical incantation equivalent to hocus pocus and now our prayer is acceptable in God's sight. No, the meaning of this is actually much deeper and it speaks to the power that is yours as you're made one with Christ. See, to ask in the name of Jesus, it means to lodge your requests before God in a way that reflects your oneness with Christ. Said another way, maybe a little simpler way, it is to be so knitted together with Christ that when you pray, it's as though He is the one making the request. To pray in Jesus' name means that my request, my statement to God, it is governed by the truth of Scripture, His truth. To ask in the name of Jesus means that my desires are aligned with Him. To ask in the name of Jesus means that my motives reflect the motives of His heart. And the result is that what comes out of me reflects the reality of Christ within me. That's what the rest of the New Testament refers to as union with Christ. And that's the whole point of what Jesus has been offering here in John 13 through 16. Remember the imagery of chapter 15? He is the vine, you are the branches, and through the Spirit of God, you, the branch, are connected to the vine so that His life flows through you and is truly in you, making you alive. 
That's what he's offering as being the fullness of life, the fullness of joy. That's what he's been talking about here. See, through the presence of his spirit, we are connected to Christ and empowered for living because Christ now is being formed and fashioned, made and manifested in us. The spirit of Christ now dwelling within you. He is the one who empowers you for living. And the result of that is that with Christ in you, fashioning and shaping you into the the image of Christ so that when you pray, it's as though he is speaking through you. That's how one you are with him. Now you, with him inside you, can truly know the fullness of joy. And that's the impact of what Jesus is explaining here. In verse 24, he even says it. So, with me inside of you, being one with you, Now you ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. See, as Jesus is explaining here, these men, they had never known a power like this. He says, until now you've asked nothing in my name. And the reason for that was because they had never had him indwelling them before. They didn't know true union, oneness with Christ. Oh, they had been with Christ, all right, that's for sure. But Christ had never truly been in them in the sense that he is promising them here. But soon, very soon, they would know that empowering kind of presence. And in that day, their joy would be made full. See, friend, the joy that Jesus gives to us here. It is made possible as we are united to Christ, Him dwelling within us, giving us access to the life of God that He promised to bring. And it says you know the Spirit of Christ alive within you that like these disciples, your joy too can be made full. And that's a really interesting little statement. Let me just break that down for us here as we start to wrap this up this morning, what does it mean? What does it look like for my joy to be made full? What does it actually mean in my life? Well, the first thing that I would have for you to notice there is that that statement is made in a passive kind of a voice. It means that the fullness of your joy isn't something that you can produce for yourself. It's something that must be produced for you You can't manufacture true joy through the burning of an aromatic candle or the giving of a really nice gift or just singing a Christmas carol just a little bit louder. No, true joy, it must be manufactured for you. You can't make it for yourself. But there's really good news hardwired into this same statement here because this statement is also made in the past tense. This joy has already been produced. What Jesus says here is that your joy has been made full. That's what he's saying here. See, the joy that you so desperately need has already been produced. And it was produced for you in the person of Jesus Christ. The reservoir of joy available in him, it's been filled all the way to the top. And Jesus, through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, 
has already done everything necessary for you now to have eternal and permanent joy. See, He came to empower your life so that you might have access in Him to the fullness of joy that only He can provide. That's the glory of the Christmas story. See, from beginning to end, from birth to death, the intention of His life was that we might now know the fullness of life with God, that we might know the way by which He cares for us, the way by which He brings true, lasting, meaningful, joyful relationship to us, the way by which He empowers us so that we can walk as being one with Him. And this morning, if you would know the care, the joy, the empowered life of Christ, then you have to embrace the work that God began at that first Christmas. After all, did not the Christmas story begin in Matthew 1 with the message of Emmanuel, which means God with us? Just consider that for a moment. The divine eternal presence taking on human flesh. Eternal timelessness peering through the eyes of an infant. Indescribable power curled and balled into the fists of a baby. Holiness and perfect righteousness draped upon that bundle of blood and bone. No wonder the angels burst onto the scene with a message of joy. We bring you good news of great joy. John's account summarizes it this way. The Word, the eternal revelation of God, He became flesh and dwelt with us. God with us, that is joy of joys. But yet, as joyful as the news of God with us is, that alone is not what produces the fullness of joy. No, the fullness of joy can only come to you as the message of God with you becomes the reality now of God in you. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit in you that the truth of John 16, 24 can be said that now, now this Christmas, your joy, it has been made full. So, this Christmas, if you don't know the joy of Jesus, if you can't sing joy to the world with a heart of integrity, then Jesus is offering you the joy of access to Himself. If you do not have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, caring permanently for you, bringing joy to you perpetually, empowering you perfectly, then you need to come to Christ and believe. It's just that simple. At the end of John's Gospel, these words that we've been reading right here in chapter 20, verse 31, we find this very simple invitation fitted well for a Christmas Sunday morning. But these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so, friend, I ask you this morning, do you believe? Have you ever looked at your sin and seen the reality of it? and then looked at the glory of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh to die in your place, 
to be raised again to new life so that you too might have your way paved into God's presence? And have you ever intentionally trusted in Him and said, I choose Him and His work instead of me and my own desires? That is what belief is. That's what it looks like to place your faith in the work of Christ on your behalf. And if you will believe, as I trust you have, then you too can have the Spirit of God inside of you, caring for you, bringing joy to you, empowering you. And the joy that we talk about at Christmas, it will be yours, not only today and tomorrow, but every day. That's the joy we have at Christmas time. And it's the joy that I invite for you to express with us now together as we sing a heart the herald angels sing.